you might also have to do some things to make some money. And he was like, you have friends and you're all the same age. You're going to get older and they're probably get a, a job and have a, a steady income, you know, and hit these milestones. And you might not be there, you know, you might get there. And everything you said was true. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? Today on the podcast, I have a rock star. His name Steve Selvage. He is the lead guitarist for the Holt Steady. His resume is very impressive, so here we go. He has toured in basically every continent. He's been on 60 albums. His bands have been on shows like Billions, Game of Thrones. He's been on every late show that's ever existed, from David Letterman to Seth Meyers. Uh, he's played at Carnegie Hall. He's played everywhere. Uh, not to mention the dude plays a mean version of Purple Rain if you really beg him. So today I bring him on to talk about the business of music. We talk about how do you make money in 2023, how he would start his career today versus how he got started in the 90s, right? And then we go down that journey of how at the age of 10, he knew he wanted to be a rock star. I even get to ask him some dumb questions I've always wanted to ask. And I pitch him on some half-baked startup ideas on other ways he could maybe monetize his skills. So it's a really fun one. If you're at all interested in the creative process or going down a non-traditional path like music or just you know hearing someone's journey, it's it was really fun and eye-opening for me. So really hope you enjoy this episode with the Memphis legend, Steve Selvage. Steve, how do we know each other? Well, 26 days before my 10th birthday, you were born. And that's when I met you, or uh, sometime after that. So yeah, if, if, if all you out there in podcast land haven't figured out now that my sister is Jim's mother. I think what's funny is like, when you realize you have a rock star uncle, it comes in different waves. And my first experience was, I had to have been in high school and mom's like, Steve's going to be on MTV. And in my mind, it's like, you have made it. You right. have won. Amy, you are it. Because for people that don't know what MTV is back in the day, imagine, I guess, YouTube, but it's one channel. So everyone yeah. has to watch the same thing. And that was back when music videos were the thing. And I remember like your music video came on, we like stayed up. And it was like, I think you were getting beat up by kids at a playground, but it was awesome. And mm -hmm. I was just yep. like, Steve's a God. Like that, that was like one of my first milestones. Yeah, that was a fun day. We just rode bikes all over town and then let some kids beat us up. The song was called Theme from spelled T-H-E-E-M. So I think it's, I think it's on YouTube. <laughs> so the, that was the first time I was like, oh, I think Steve's doing something really cool. And then the second time, um, you live in Memphis, a lot of family in Memphis. I was in Memphis for the holidays and I right. walk in with, with Joanne and you're performing and we go to the bar and we'll say I'm 21. I think I'm pretty close, but let's just say I'm like nervous to be in that situation. Right. And yeah. I like, I go, I go to order like a, a Bud Light tall boy and um, I, I go to the bar and he's like, wait, you know, Steve Selvage? Like, oh yeah, Steve's my uncle. And he goes, there's a lot of stars in Memphis. He goes, Steve Selvage is a superstar. He's oh. like, drinks on, he's like, drinks on me. And I was like, what? Because I have probably like seven dollars in my pocket. And I'm like, this is right. amazing. So, so yeah, man, you're, you're, you're getting me the hookup at a, at a very early age. My pleasure. I'm glad I can help. You grew up in a house that had an amazing musician and your dad and my, my grandfather. Mm -hmm. And obviously that has an, an impact, right? When did you decide to, to go all in on this? It was sort of, there were components of that that were similar for sure. But the biggest thing that my dad did was he just made it available. You know, yeah, he, did, he didn't push it. He wasn't like, you've got to be a musician, you know. He just, and for my, both my brother and myself, it was just like, is there, if, if you'd have a question, I'm here with answers. If I could, maybe, if, if, you know, you know, so, but early on, I mean, I was fascinated with, with instruments 
for sure. I mean, just, just the guitar was very seductive. I mean, I remember, you know, my dad played every Friday and Saturday night at a bar and this is when everybody smoked in bars, you know, <laughs> I, I would like, you know, that, you know, on the weekday or whatever, like Monday or whatever, I would, I'm, I would open up the case and the smell would wafted out and I would just look at the guitar. It was all battered and scuffed up. And I was just like, man, it was like a caliber or something. I don't know. It was, you know, <laughs> it's like, this is the real deal, man. This is, you know, this guitar is in the trenches. And I was fascinated by that. And yeah, I just, I'm trying to think of, so I, I, I got a bass when I was like, seven years old maybe and that was just like the kiss influence nice i've got a rad picture of me with that bass on christmas morning like with my hand up in the air and i was very serious about being on stage and just like the massive event of it and seeing my dad with my boy the neutrons on stage it was you know it's just like these were like grown men you know looming large and I don't know. I just, so I was, so I got the bass and I kind of messed around with it a little bit. And then my dad had gotten a drum kit from my brother because he had expressed some interest in playing drums. And then he kind of just, he didn't get with it really. But so then I kind of took over and I was going to be a drummer. And this is like nine years old, probably 10. It's, it's hard to remember the exact timeline, you know, because this gets compressed, but, um, I remember I was playing drums, but I was like, I was okay. I'm still just kind of okay at the drums. Not very good. And, you know, playing along the records, but it was like when you're playing drums by yourself, it's kind of, I don't know, for me, the payoff wasn't as much there. Um, mm -hmm. And one day my dad, I was with my dad at this place called Strings and Things, which is like the local guitar store. That's kind of where all the Memphis musicians of note hung out. And my dad was kind of, you know, he was, I mean, that was the other thing, just seeing my dad being kind of like a made guy, you know, it, you know, people, people knew him, you know, and I'd see yeah. him in like the newspaper and stuff. And it's like, wow, man. And like, so he kind of had run of the place. So he would go in and get like some guitar picks or strings, or whatever he needed. And so in an effort to keep me from wandering off, he just sat me down, put a guitar in my hand, plugged it into an amp and was like, <laughs> you know, here, mess around with this only just to keep me occupied. So it's like oh. today's iPad. I need to start using a guitar and an amp. Yeah, an exactly. <laughs> and, uh, the amp was a rolling jazz chorus, which is like this amp. From the, if you think of any music from the eighties, it has this clean washy sound. It's like, it's that amp. And I played something that kind of sounded like the police. I was, you know, cause I'd had my hands on a fretboard with the, with the, with the bass. So, you know, but anyway, I, I made a sound that sounded like something on a record. I was like, whoa, you know, wow, I did it. And it was a kind of revelatory. And then my, my brother had gotten really into David Bowie. And so we had always on play the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. So I just, that album just blew my mind. The guitar sound on that album blew my mind. And I was like, I'm. I, I need to do this. I need to figure out a way to do this. So I asked my dad, I was like, can you show me how to play Ziggy Stardust? He's like, well, well, I'll show you E, A, and D chords and get those under your belt and then we'll go from there. So I, I got to where I could go between those chords, you know, and then that was it. It was just that I was completely hooked at that point and I was probably 10 years old and it was like the die was cast. It was just like guitar was my thing and it, 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 it chose me and it's, it's been a lifelong, it's been, you know, it's been 40 years of, of obsession and, you know, constant companionship, you know, but it, it was just something that I did, you know, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't know how real of a, a notion I had as a kid of what was possible. I just wanted to be a rock star or whatever. But also yeah, wanted to be yeah. an accomplished musician, you know, I, I was, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to be able to, you know, I was really inspired by Jimmy Page and the fact that he was a session guy before he was super rock star. I was like, I want to play sessions, man. I want to be, a, you know, the idea that you could come in and just super cold, just, you know, never have heard something and play it, and, you know, 
So early on, I was fascinated with that. And I, I didn't really put too much thought into it other than it's just all, all that I wanted to do. I mean, I I can remember being in like the first grade and it was like, I didn't want to be a fireman or an astronaut <laughs> or, a, you know, I wanted to be a musician. I, I remember saying that like in first grade, it's like, what do you want to be? I was like, I want to be a musician. And so it was just what I did, you know, and it re really it kind of was in, in a vacuum for the longest time. You know, it was just me in my room playing guitar. But when I started skating, you know, in the mid eighties, that's when the whole, like the second wave of skateboarding really took off, you know, with that's where Tony Hawk came up and, you know, the Bones Brigade and, and with skating came hardcore music and it was really accessible, you know, it wasn't like Motley Crue or like these God-like rock stars, huge hair, <laughs> you know on the stage that I would never even get close to. It was a band that I was hanging out with that were coming to these all ages shows at the antenna club. And, and it was like, yeah, let's start a band. I was like, you play guitars. Yeah. And I was like, okay, cool. We'll just write some songs. And so that's kind of, you know, where it started interacting with other people, not just, you know, shedding in my room. And, and to your point about, you know, like being serious about practice, I never like, I was never like, I got to practice. It was either, and I need to get in my three hours a day. It's no, like, it's, it, I'm it, obsessed. It, I want to do this right when I get home from school. Yeah. It was just like, I can't think about anything else. I can't keep my hands off of this thing. Or, you know, I don't know how to play Stairway to Heaven and I need to figure that out. We got to work something on that's those. kind of interesting because like, like with the drums, you're like playing to music and then you hear these songs like, oh, I need to learn how to play that. So that's the motivation. Even before like, oh, I'm gonna learn to play the guitar and learn these chords. You're like, no, I want to know how to play that song. Is that kind of the catalyst that would like motivate you to learn more and more? Yeah, it was just, I just, you know, I love the music so much. I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to know, I wanted to know the mechanics of it. You know, I just, I don't know. I just, Fender was sold to CBS in 1965 and like things changed like a pre CBS strat, like all the minutiae of vintage guitar. Like I was early on way into vintage guitars. You know, I knew that my dad's, you know, compadre Lee Baker, who was a hero of mine. I knew that he had a 59 Les Paul, a sunburst Les Paul, which was even then yeah. kind of the Holy grail of vintage guitars. And I knew that that's what Jimmy Page played. Yeah, so you're kind of like nerding out on all aspects, of, which kind of speaks to like wanting to do sessions because it's like you're this hired gun that can come in and, and do anything. Yeah. So what was there this ever inflection point? Because I feel like, like especially with like you and Sydney and your dad and Graham, everyone's so sharp and even like almost academic. Right? Your brother's a doctor. Was yeah. there ever this point where you're like, oh, this is the time I'm not going to go down a traditional path and I'm going to do this? Because Or was it like not even like a question? It, you know, I, my dad was, he was very influential to me in so many ways, but he was like, go to school, you know, learn something else. It, it'll be good. You know, if you're talking to a record executive and you can talk about something other than music that might pique his interest and he might, you know, stick around a little bit longer and actually listen to your band or whatever. So I'm in high school, you know, I'm in a couple of bands here and there, nothing much is going on, but so I definitely made the decision, you know, to go to what was then Memphis State, now the U of M. I, I made a decision not to go out of town for school. And, you know, to be honest, like, I wasn't that great of a student. I, I, you know, I tested well, I got put into the advanced classes and I was just like, I didn't ask for this. You know, I like, <laughs> you know, I love learning, but the structure of school, like some people just aren't made for it. Like the, the school that we have, the traditional school in, in the States, you know? So I don't know what colleges I could have got into anyway, but I got into Memphis State, but I, I made a choice to do that so I could stay in town and play music because there was yeah. a rich, I already knew that there was, Memphis had such a legacy and there's people were still there, you know? So I start, I get in a band with this dude, Robbie Grant, uh, their guitar player had left and he was like, I knew him from high school and he was like, Hey man, can you come play with us? And I was kind of like, yeah, I'll play with you. Even though like they did like, so I had a band called Oversoul and we played all original music and nobody came to see us because the music wasn't whatever. <laughs> it was a little too intellectual. And Robbie had this band, Thrill Confusion, and they mainly played covers. And I, I, I was like, they're not doing it on their own merits. They're just doing covers, but they played to like a lot of people. So yeah. I joined that band and it was like, 
that was really like when I sort of let off the leash. Like I was like people, you know, there was a crowd and they were stoked. And I was like, I'm here for this, man. Yeah. You know, like the shirt came off, even the pants came off. Um, Absolutely. You know, and, and I had just all this hair, like long hair and, you know, but because I'd seen Purple Rain, I was just like, I want to do that. So then that band kind of falls apart and I start Big Ass Truck. The guy was like, hey, man, can your band play? I was like, that band's broken up, but I'll put something together. And so I called Robbie and, and that band started. So Big Ass Truck kind of got big quick. You know, we played our first show in January of 1993. And by spring, we were headlining the club and, and things started to move fast. And then, so then we started the tour. And this is back in the nineties. So college, nothing, it was like, there was one, you know, there was like the computer center where you can kind of get online, but it was real primitive. And so to get classes, it was just like a mess. You know, you, you, you'd wait in line for hours to try and get signed up for these classes. And then you, you didn't get them. So I was in anthropology of nature and you know, I'm going through and big ass trucks start to get bigger. And it's like this one semester, I got none of the anthropology classes that I needed to take. They were all full. And so what you would do is you would wait for the ad drop date to see if somebody dropped yeah. the class. And I was just like, you know, it did, but by that point, literally I would, during exams, I would take the exam as early as possible. I'd be at my desk with a bag and two guitar cases next to me. I would turn in my exam grab my stuff, run out to the street and the van would pull up. I'd throw my stuff in and we'd go on tour. I mean, that, that actually happened. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so, so when I didn't get all those classes, man, I'm not, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do this. I just, I can't wait to see if I stand a lot. Nah, I'm not, yeah. we're going on tour. I'm just like, I'm going to sit this semester out and see what happens. You know, I'm, I might go back. I never went back. You know, so that's, that was a big inflection point right there. I mean, that's what it was like, okay, I'm not going to finish schools. I'm going to go to the college of rock and roll knowledge. And we toured a lot and did our thing for about eight, nine years. But then I'm still like working jobs, like catering and stuff. Like when I'm off the road, you know, and then around about, I want to say 1999 or 2000, Big Ass Truck was still going, but we were about to stop. I started it must have been 2000 because I started playing more gigs in town because like for the longest time, it was just, I was on tour with Big Ass Truck. And when I was home, I might play a gig here and there, but it was just like Big Ass Truck was all I did. That was my identity. That was my worldview. That's all I knew. And then I started to play with other people and that was really educational. So anyway, when I started playing with people more, I realized that I could just get get gigs in town. And I remember being like, I'm not going to, sign up for catering gigs anymore. So that was just like, I'm going to try and do just this for my living. And then Big Ass Truck broke up and then I was in town. I wasn't on tour anymore. And I was like, I got to make a living. If I'm going to be doing this, I got to play. And that was really interesting because prior to that point, you know, I'd learned what I'd learned and I'd had the band and I was like, I thought because I was 20 whatever years old, and my band had toured a lot and been on MTV. I was like, well, I know everything now, you know, which was, and I was just wrong about it. And I started playing with other people that I didn't, you know, that I sort of knew, but that, you know, in the big ass truck days, I would have been like, well, that's not what I do. You know, that's their thing. Kind of like almost being shitty about it. And I had to learn all this other music and I realized there was so much that I didn't know. And then, so I started playing three nights a week at this one bar and playing with all these people that I'd never played with before, playing songs I never played before, playing genres I never played before, stuff that I thought that wasn't cool and stuff that I realized was very cool. And, you know, the, one of the greatest gifts I was ever given was like having to learn music that I didn't think that I liked and having mm-hmm. to find my place in that. And so from 2001 to, you know, like to 2004 or five, I, I just grew exponentially. You know, and then it was just, you know, from then on, it was just like either I was in a band doing stuff or I was just doing stuff in town. And then in 2010, I joined the Hold Steady and that's been kind of the main constant ever since. So that's, that's sort of a really wacky, poorly described timeline of, of all of that. But yeah, well, I think it's so interesting, the inflection points of like when you go all in on 
something. It's like you have the momentum, the writing's on the wall, like big ass track is yeah. taking off. You're about to tour. You can't miss out on that. And no. then it's then it's after that, it's okay. Let me like cobble together how I make a true career out of this full time. And yeah. then it clearly pays off. Are you a business owner in desperate need of talent, but you have issues finding good people? Or worse, you find the talent, but then they want you to pay them double what you have budgeted. Yeah, I know the feeling. This is where remotely talents can help. Imagine having a personal HR team that finds you A plus talent, and here's the best part. It costs you 40 or even 80% less than US employees. It's magic. So let's say you need help with setting up your social ads, your Google ads, email marketing, website development, customer service. Their team sources the top Ukrainian talent for you and they deliver three top vetted candidates straight to your inbox. It's a one-time payment and best yet, they give you a 60-day guarantee to ensure you're happy. Hey, if it doesn't work out, they'll find and replace the talent for free. Even better, 3% of all sales go to the Children's Hospital in Ukraine. At Growth Head, our agency, we've hired four people from Ukraine. I am blown away by the level of work we're getting. So whether you need a virtual assistant or a creative director, give this a try. Go to remotelytalents.com right now and start a conversation. See if they can help you. You really have nothing to lose. What One thing I'm interested in is like, the business of, of, of music and, and even what it is now versus then, because like back then, I think it's like, OK, you start playing in your garage, you get a band, you get a record deal. And then I don't know what happens from there. You like make it big and then you're like all of a sudden, 30 years later, you're playing at Vegas. Right. It's like, well, what, what right. is the, the, the business of, of music? Whereas there's all these other revenue streams because it's like from doing session gigs to like one-off things or even you know you have your own recording studio you could be doing mm -hmm. stuff there and then as you go into a band how that's if that's more stable or that gives you know a little bit more of a foundation versus bouncing around like what what is kind of your north star you look to and like oh that's the way you should do it i mean i'm fortunate that currently i'm, I'm in a band that you know that works consistently and is at a level that you know it, it can i mean it's we're we're not we're not rich and famous, you know, we have a very dedicated community around us and it, it generates income, but it's, you know, it's, it's the, the, the business has changed so much. Like in the big ass truck days, we weren't anywhere near as big as the hold steady is. We never got anywhere near as big as the hold steady, but I got substantial royalties when in the big ass truck days, because it was before streaming, streaming just eviscerated that revenue stream of like royalties mm -hmm. from radio or, you know, placement, you know, in, in a show or something before that, I mean, and then still to this day, it's just, I'll, I'll take up any kind of hustle I can find, you know, like mm -hmm. in, in the early two mid two thousands, there was a guy in town who had a contract with a cheerleading company. So they'd have all these cheerleading competitions. They need music for it. It costs too much money to use the actual song. But if they had a re-record of it that was more geared towards dance, then they, they could use that. So I would get paid a couple hundred bucks to make these sound alike tracks that were like just a minute 30. It was just like a snippet yeah. of the song. So, I mean, <laughs> somewhere out there, there's a CD with me programming a drum machine, playing guitar and bass and, and singing. Because somebody told me that you had a boyfriend. <laughs> I mean, it's some girls know, doing a bad handspring to, to your, yeah, to your yeah. I mean, <laughs> man, I did some weird stuff, man, you know, but nowadays I'll play on someone's record and I'll just record it here at my house, you know, in my, in my yeah. studio. So it was, you know, I mean, my dad taught me like, if you're not superstar level, you know, you gotta, you gotta connect the dots and just hustle, you know? And yeah. he was, I mean, really more than being like showing me how to play something or, you know, because it's funny because you know, he says, yeah, I'm a better guitar player. It's like, well, no, it's just that I do something different because like mm. my dad's arrangements and his accompaniment of himself was, I mean, we talk about it. Me and Luther talk about it. It's so just clean and pristine and not easy to do at all. And, yeah. and then never mind the fact that he was one of the greatest singers ever, you know, I never opened my mouth around him for years because I was just like, <laughs> yo, you got that, bro. But the the thing when he, you know, he knew really from the jump that the die was cast with me, 
you know, he could tell, he could tell the difference between me and my brother. He's like, yeah, oh, he's, he's going to do this. Nothing's going to keep him from doing this. And he told me when I was like, you know, I think like around 18 or something, when it was like, he knew that where I was going, he's like, look, I think it's great. And you're talented and you're on this journey and you might hit big and make a lot of money and be famous, you know, probably not, but there's no reason it couldn't happen, but you might also have to do some things to make some money. And he was like, but here's what you need to be aware of. You're not thinking about it now, but you have friends and you're all the same age. You're going to get older and they're probably going to maybe get married before you do. Maybe have a kid before you do. Certainly get that first new car before you do. Buy that house, first house before you do, because they're going to, they're going to get a, a job and have a, a steady income, you know, and hit these milestones. And you might not be there, you know, you might get there and everything you said was true, you know? So it was, it was a matter of just reconciling that this is what I do. And I and also, you know, there was talking about inflection points. There was, I called peeling off points with you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're in high school and you're playing with guys and then they bug out and just go to college and they don't really do it anymore. So that, and that happened, these guys fell off. I'm still here. And then, so you're with these guys and then guys and gals or whatever, and you're playing and then maybe they graduate college and get a job and then they don't, you know, you know, and, but I'm still here or, or, oh, somebody has a kid. Well, I can't go on tour anymore. So I'm still here. Yeah. So it was like, it was just like the group that was left was like, those were the people that, you know, still, still did it. So how do you, how do you manage that comparison? Cause that, that, that's tough. Even like me is very different, but like I was working in finance and investment banking. And actually funny, I had a conversation with your dad. Cause I was like, I don't think my life is to stare at, stare at spreadsheets. I was like, yeah. I, I want to do something more creative. And I like went to like startups and did things. And there's this real comparison. So oh, your buddies that are still in finance are crushing it. They're doing yeah. well. And you, you want to be like cool and confident what you do, but it's, it's not easy to not look at the other side. Oh, wow. They're, they're doing very well. Like, how did you either prepare for that or just be okay with it? Cause I struggled a little bit. Yeah. I think just because I was loving what I was doing, you know, I mean, certainly there was just, you know, moments where it's just like, Hey, we're going to do this. It's like, right, well, good. I can't afford to do that. But what <laughs> the thing was, was just that, I don't know, man, I was just always on stage playing and having a blast, you know, and I never really tripped about it too much. It was just because I wasn't, I, you know, I wasn't having to get up on Monday morning and, you know, and, and, and I worked enough just in catering or just, you know, in the kitchen. It's, I, I mean, I, I knew what it was like, like, you know, I'm, I remember when, when like the big guy stuck, we all got jobs at this one catering place. And it's the first time I'd like worked in a long time, you know, other than music. And I remember like we played that weekend after having worked all week. And I was like, oh my God, this, that's the feeling of the weekend. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so ready. This is so nice to just, you know, but I was just always focused on getting somewhere. And, and, and also there was just always just the musical journey, you know, like just beyond the finance of it, it was just honing my craft, learning more, you know, discovering things, writing, you know, so it, it, usually it was okay. I mean, there were certainly times where I was like, I wish I could afford that, you know, and there were certainly times yeah. where I was just like, I want that. I'm going to put it on a credit card. Now I have that. Yay. <laughs> you know. And is the path to monetization, because it's like not as much the royalties now, it's about touring. Is it about merch? Is that really like the, the best way bands can can make money? I mean, it was up until 2020. Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, and so everybody's trying to figure it out now because it's, I mean, touring is way more expensive right now because really? of the war in Ukraine and because of, you know, inflation related to that and COVID mm -hmm. and all that. Yeah, I mean, touring, it just depends on what level you're at and what you're willing to do. I mean, a lot of people do privates. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. It's just, you know, I know that we do what we do, the whole study, you know, mm -hmm. and that's because we're, we've been around for 20 years and have a, 
have a community that supports us. Yeah, your fans are insane, man. Like when I go to those shows, I mean, they they are there and they are there. They're just intense on watching it. It's yeah. awesome. I mean, like another fun dub question I'm excited to ask you. So you have been on Game of Thrones. You've been on Billions with the Hold Steady. You've been right. on, I think, every late show conceivable. Not Fallon, like, not SNL. Not fa- okay. So though, though that's like on the bingo card, you have two left to hit, it sounds like. So like it's gonna be tough. Yeah, give me give me like a rock and roll story from any of those or any like funny stories for those that, that are appropriate for, for this audience. Right. I mean, the 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 late shows are so much fun, but it's it's you know, they do it day in, day out. It's there's not a lot of shenanigans, you know. Yeah. It's it's very union. It's you know, <laughs> And and aren't you doing it at four o'clock? It's not like it's a night show and you're just doing one song and then you're out. Yeah. Yeah. You get there in the morning, you set up, you you run through stuff like over and over and over again for for lights, for camera, for sound. Yeah, three forty five they start the show in real time. Now that's for the late shows. I mean, I remember we were playing Letterman and you you're on doesn't for some reason you have to get on an elevator to get somewhere. And Bobby and I got in the elevator and the other guests on the show that was David Beckham. So we rode the elevator with David Beckham. That's and I was cool. like, I was like, that is one incredibly handsome. <laughs> you mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like that suit. It, yeah. Okay. Now it's like you get it. You're like, all right, I get it. Yeah. With billions. That was, you know, that's like movie making TV making. So it's, that was a 18 hour day or whatever. And, and so for people to know, you guys were like on an episode as a band at a party, I think. So you guys were literally in the show. Yeah. Like with, with Game of Thrones, they just played our song. We re- we recorded the Baron Maiden Fair, which, you know, a part, it, which is in, <laughs> in it, you know, and that was a whole different thing. But, um, but yeah, we were like, so the premise is, is that, you know, Axe and his buddies think that they've cleared some major hurdle and they're you know celebrating it so he rents out a, a, a club and hires his favorite band the hold steady because the 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 guy that the show is a hold steady fan because like mm-hmm. prior to that there was like his his wife and her sister or whatever like they go out drinking or whatever they're in the car and sequestered to memphis is playing but so anyway yeah he has hired the hold steady to play this celebratory you know evening and like ladies and gentlemen the hold steady and we play you know, what was in a new song for us. And so it's, it's like you get there and, you know, you, you run through the song and they're like, you're playing the song. Like, all right, all right, stop. All right, good. And then you go and wait for three hours and then you, <laughs> they set up another shot, you know? And so, you know, but I was hanging out with Damian Lewis because he's kind of, he's a rock enthusiast, you know, mm-hmm. I think maybe a guitar enthusiast and, he was asking some questions about some stuff. I mean, I think he 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 sort of saw us as exotic little animals, you know, because yeah, yeah. we did we actually played rock and roll, you know, and we've lived it our entire lives. So that was cool. You know, I didn't get to meet Maggie Siff. I really wanted to, but <laughs> uh, I stood close to her and I was just like, there wow, you go. there. Yeah. At one point, like I just I had just been watching Band of Brothers and it was so awkward. Like he was in the middle of like, we're talking about something. And I was just like, I really like Band of Brothers, by the way. <laughs> you know, I mean, cause this dude's like, I mean, he's famous, you he's know, big, he's big time. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your buddy who, or your guy that you worked with might've known the whole steady, but this is off at several different levels. So anyway, we get done and I'm just like, my hotel's around the corner from the, where we filmed it. And I'm like, I am going to get a, a bottle of wine and like the biggest order of pasta I can get <laughs> and just eat some pasta and drink some red wine and knock the F out, man. I had a long day. So I walk in the hotel and I hear somebody go, Hey, and I turn around and it's Damian Lewis, David Costable, the guy that played dollar bill <laughs> and some other guys. And they're just hanging out, having drinks. They're like, come yeah. have a drink. And I'm like, all right, cool. And so David Costable's like, you're not paying for anything. I'm like, okay, I'll have an old fashioned. <laughs> Let's go. And so we just started hanging out. And like, 
we're sitting in there in a window and people are walking by and they're coming in and like they're getting their pictures taken and stuff. And, and, and I'm just, I am this grubby, dusty dude from Memphis who plays in a rock and roll band and just invisible, <laughs> you know. And then the bar closed and the dude that played Dollar Bill was like, because Michter's was like a conspicuous sort of like sponsor or whatever. Mm -hmm. They're always drinking Michter's on the show. He just pulled out a yeah. bottle of Michter's out of his backpack. We just continued <laughs> just raging. It was amazing, you know, and I was like, okay, well, thanks famous people. I had a good time. Yeah. You know, and I've eventually just sort of, you know, swerved on over to my room and went, went back home to Memphis, you know, <laughs> it was interesting. That was, that was a, a new wrinkle for sure. So one thing we like to do is like pitch half-baked startup ideas. So I'm going right. to do rap, rapid fire ones that are probably going to be horrible or amazing. You can decide. So the first one is when I was growing up and Michael Jordan had retired, he launched his Michael Jordan's Michael Jordan fantasy camp where you basically like it's these executives that pay like 35 or 40 grand to go for a week to Vegas and you show up, you get a room, you get a book or a bag that's like a Jumpman bag that has all this stuff, shoes from Jordan, you know, uniforms. And then for the next three to five days, you're put on a team, you have an NBA coach that's coaching you and you actually get to hang and meet Michael Jordan. And I was like, okay, that is amazing. I would love to do that one day. I think LeBron James now has one, but like there has to be an equivalent for guitar players, for rock and roll, for, you know, very wealthy people that still love playing guitar that would fork over a lot of money to hang with you and other musicians for a week fantasy camp. First, does that even exist? Two, how amazing or horrible is that idea? Okay, well, we do something similar. It's not a week. In, in the past, we did a thing where you could pay to, to do a sound check jam with the band. Get up and play drums or bass oh, or wow. guitar with us. How much would people pay for that? I don't know. I, I, I left that up to the manager. David Gottlieb, yeah. is, is, he, is, he has done such a good job of figuring out ways to just to monetize things because you have to. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like everything's so expensive. And, you know, so what we do now is there's different tier. You can just, you can just buy the ticket, come see the show. Mm -hmm. Come and go and that's it. So what we're doing in Portland this weekend is you can buy this all in thing where there's what we call sound check party, which we've been doing for a while. We'll do our normal sound check and then we'll open up doors and the people that pay for it come in and we do a sound check and we have a moderator who does a Q and a, which then leads to a certain song, you know, and, and then we open up the floor to questions from people that pay to go to the soundcheck jam. So there's that. That's a smart idea. Yeah. Now. And so we're adding things to it now. So Franz, our keyboard player as uh, a writer, he has two novels published. And so he's doing like a, some sort of writing kind of thing, like a talk, I think it's just a talk. And then Tad and I are doing like a guitar experience. Like it's not a lesson, but it's like. We're going to break down like three songs and how we, you know, wrote it, how we decide who plays what, you know, we'll talk about, we've never done this before. So it's all kind of theoretical right now, but you know, we're going to talk about gear and that kind of thing. So, you know, the guitar, anyone who's interested in guitar can come to that. You may, you then, should have product sponsors for that. You should get some sort of affiliate code as you're recommending gear and people go off and buy yeah. it. I mean, that's like the best product placement ever. Right. I mean, I've got some endorsements with you know quite a few pedal companies already but but yeah i mean it, it's all kind of being formulated right now you know but and that's also because we've changed our touring model we don't get the bus and go from town to town to town every night we do these residencies so yeah. we're playing we're playing thursday through saturday or or, th or friday through sunday in one city nice yeah in, yeah. in one venue you know and it becomes more of an experience just because, I mean, the way our crowd is, it's like, they're not coming out on a Monday. I mean, some might, but you know, yeah. and you know, it's so th that model has led us to kind of be able to improvise and, and think of new things. And so while we're not doing a week long fantasy camp, we are offering immersive experiences, you know, for people to take, you know, to, to get sort of to take a peek on the inside.
Yeah. Oh, that's a cool idea. Okay. All right. So you're, you're already on top of that one. And okay. I think I've got two more for you real quick. Another one is, so do you know what Cameo is? Have you seen what's yeah. going on with yeah. Cameo? So did you know Kevin from The Office, the kind of bigger guy, he reported his money on Kevio, Cameo. He did $1.5 million from recording Cameos in one year which is insane. And it's, yeah. I think he charges like 300 bucks a, a cameo. And I was like, okay, what's, what would be like an equivalent of that with the music? Obviously you could just do cameo, but it's, right. we work with a lot of e-commerce brands that like they're looking to do good content for TikTok. And so they do, they, we can work with influencers through some platforms or get user generated content. And it's okay. If TikTok is like music based, what if you had this like productized service of getting a rock star to do your TikTok video and you charge an insane premium. Right. And you're like, oh, it's kind of honestly like what you're doing for the cheer music. So oh, that's the video you're trying to make. I'll help you like 10x the quality of that clip, that 60 second clip and do the the music over for it. So that, I, that's I mean, my half-baked idea. I would love to get into that hustle. I don't think I'm famous enough. I'm not famous <laughs> at all. So, you know, I'm just, you know, look, look I'm, there's a large chunk of the whole steady fan base that probably doesn't know my name at all yeah but i mean it's it's crazy because i know that there's a pedal effects pedal company called jhs mm -hmm. uh, and josh scott is it, he's found that's his company yeah and he he does cameos now because yeah. he is a youtube influencer because it, it I, and i watched this grow in real time so you know I, 10 years ago, probably, or however long ago, you had, you know, YouTube videos, everybody had their product that they were selling. And it was, you know, so Josh Scott has his pedal company, JHS Pedals. It's a static shot of the pedal, you know, and here's, here's my clean tone. Now, here's what the pedal sounds like. The mid control on this is, and, you know, it's like he, so after a while, he was like, I can't do this. It's so boring. I hate it. I hate doing it. I hate demoing my pedals. I don't want to yeah. do it. So he just started, he was just like in his car. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, this is the other thing too. He is like a mad pedal collector. He knows he's delving into the history of all these pedal companies, how it started. He's really into the minutia, but it just grew into what's now the JHS show. And it's a juggernaut. Oh, wow. I mean, it's got a, a lot of subscribers, a lot of views. They do live videos. It's become this mm. whole thing. People get mad now because they'll be like, hey, you know, this pedal that no one likes, it's really actually kind of cool. And then they're like yeah. people trying to get $600 for them because they don't make them anymore. So anyway, he has become a YouTube personality. Like people, you know, just hang on what he has to say. You know, and he's probably driving a lot of purchases because how much is like an average pedal? Anywhere from a hundred bucks to three hundred dollars, oh, depending man. on yeah. the sophistication. And you know, he's not just promoting his stuff. I mean, yeah, he is there to sell his pedals, but he'll be like, "Okay, you know what? This today we're going to talk about Earthquaker devices, and we're going to get Jamie from Earthquaker on the show, and we're going to talk about their new pedal launch or whatever." So it's it's sort of anti-capitalism, you know, in, in terms of like yeah. just promoting your brand, but. In doing so, he's made this whole content other thing that, you know, so, so now people will pay him to, you know, talk about, I don't, I don't know what he does, you know, but it's, yeah. I, I mean, look, if someone would pay me to run my mouth, I would be heaven. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. And it's, I like when you go after a niche, it's not like you're going to this wide audience. It's a very specific audience, but the recommendations are going to be on point and it's for yeah. like, very premium, nice stuff. That's cool. And I, I know we're running up on time, but like my last idea was, I think you need to sling ginger snaps and make some sort of like a direct to consumer ginger snap, like mail in a box company. Right. We'd have to figure out the branding for it. But I think yeah. Ryan was saying like you've you've perfected the recipe and make them better than, than she did. But anyway, we, we can talk more about that one offline, but that needs to exist. Yeah. I mean, I crank out a, a, well over a thousand cookies every year in, in December. <laughs> All right, so I'll go three. We'll go kind of lightning round real quick. This is okay. a question I like to ask. What is the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your professional career? Oh, my God. I don't know if I can answer that. The nicest thing 
that's anyone. It, it, it's when somebody that I look up to and worship and respect pays me a compliment or, or not pay, pay me a compliment, acknowledges that I've done well. I'm trying to admit not to make it an ego thing. Yeah. But like being in Memphis, playing with the guys that were on all the Al Green records, the high rhythm section, the Hodges brothers, Leroy, Teeny, Charles, the fact that they accept me and have, you know, expressed their satisfaction with my playing means the world. It's, you know, I did a session with David Hood, who's played on so many records. I'll take you there. The bass break, doom, 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 doom. Like that's him. Nine to five. That's it. You know, wow. I did a session with him and he just looked at me. He was like, you're too young to be that good. So, <laughs> you know, and I, I'm, and that sounds like I'm pumping myself up. I'm really not. It's just the, you know, the, the fact that these guys have, have, have it all accepted me because they don't, they didn't yeah. have to, you know, so I'd yeah. say, I'd say that. No, that's, that's pretty cool, man. And I, that's super motivation. It's like, wow, I'm clearly onto something. All right. Second one. What dirt can you give on my mom? Bonus points <laughs> if you can throw in, in any other family members in there. Well, you know, I mean, I would probably venture to say, first of all, I'm not going to rat your mom out because I don't want, <laughs> no, I don't you're want not those a snitch. consequences. Yeah. I don't want those consequences. <laughs> And, um, and just to know the power dynamic, my mom is the oldest and Steve is the youngest, if you can yeah. tell by the age gap. So yeah, the, the well, herd would to, be coming. To that end, I would say that probably when she was doing the most dirt, if there was, I was so young, I wasn't privy to it, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're so innocent. I don't know if that's yeah. wrong or right. Yeah. You know, I was just all about, you know, my big wheel or something. <laughs> all right. All right. Well. Well, well, I'll, I'll do a follow-up that on that one. I'll let you think more about it. All right, the final one. Why is Purple Rain our family closeout song? So people that don't know, like we would go to Memphis every year and Steve would do the show with his friends that was just so epic. And you'd usually do it at a place where it's like a BYOB bar and we're hanging out in the whole family's front row and we would just camp out yeah. for hours. That and was a, a, a group called the Pirates. Yeah, it would escalate and it was so much fun, but it always ended with you doing a solo, doing Purple Rain. Maybe you're ripping off a shirt. Maybe you're not. But like, no, well, not how a, did yeah, that yeah. come to be? <laughs> well, you know, again, Purple Rain, the movie, the album, the artists changed my life. Like it, it, it set me on my path. And then sometime in the late 90s, Big Ass Truck was on tour and things were going super awesome, but we were playing in Colorado and there was nobody there. It was a dud. The whole tour is dud. Yeah. So I'm like, you know what? We we're on, I was like, let's just play purple. I'm going to, I'm going to sing. I'm going to play purple rain. Never done it before. <laughs> but I was like, I knew the chords. And it was like, just, these are the chords. We're, we're going to do this. So I did it. Yeah. It was, um, I, I had, I was just like, this is so great. So I just kind of did it on and off, you know? So then when that thing, the Pirates is just a loose group of friends playing cover songs, you know, a lot of, you know, Bob Dylan and the band and talking heads and soul tunes and whatever, some David Bowie in there. So when I started playing with them, I brought whatever, you know, Doug Psalm and other things, you know, to it. So it was like, I was like, yeah, I can do Purple Rain, do Purple Rain. So the reason it's the last song is because what are you going to play after Purple Rain? Nothing. Can't follow up. Can't follow that. <laughs> I mean, the, the night is over. So, and it was also that, so because of that, it was like, if, it, if people were starting to drag a little bit or just, you know, it's getting late, man. Let's wrap this up. You know, it's like, we're done. This is it. We're, you know, you're such a lovely audience. We'd like to take you home with us. We'd love to take you home. That's it. So yeah, that's, that's why. Because you don't follow Purple Rain. Yeah, that's how you end with the bang but um but dude this was so fun i know we've gone yeah way dude, over. so much fun yeah where so like from I, I feel like your instagram is amazing but like where should people go to follow you or the hold steady or even like the the album that you fairly recently just did with everybody in memphis with with paul and luther yeah. like where should people go you can go to my instagram at steve selvage you can go to the Hold Steady's Instagram, you know, or holdsteady.com. 
org, I think, or net. Hold on, that net. I don't know. Just, <laughs> yeah, he was put in the show notes. Mr. Promotion here. The project that I did over the pandemic with my friends Luther Dickinson and Paul Taylor is called Mods. That's M-E-M underscore M-O-D-S. We're on Instagram. It's out on my the label that my dad started, Peabody Records. And if you go to at Peabody Records, that's on Instagram as well. And use that Google machine and you can pretty much find me, I think. Yeah, it usually, it usually works pretty well. This yeah. was super fun, man. Re- really appreciate it. I enjoyed it, dude. I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out GrowthHit. GrowthHit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthIt has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman. Are you a business owner in desperate need of talent, but you have issues finding good people? Or worse, you find the talent, but then they want you to pay them double what you have budgeted. Yeah, I know the feeling. This is where remotely talents can help. Imagine having a personal HR team that finds you A plus talent, and here's the best part, it costs you 40 or even 80% less than US employees. It's magic. So let's say you need help with setting up your social ads, your Google ads, email marketing, website development, customer service. Their team sources the top Ukrainian talent for you and they deliver three top vetted candidates straight to your inbox. It's a one-time payment and best yet, they give you a 60-day guarantee to ensure you're happy. Hey, if it doesn't work out, they'll find and replace the talent for free. Even better, 3% of all sales go to the Children's Hospital in Ukraine. At Growth Head, our agency, we've hired four people from Ukraine. I am blown away by the level of work we're getting. So whether you need a virtual assistant or a creative director, give this a try. Go to remotelytalents.com right now and start a conversation. See if they can help you. You really have nothing to lose.